very last couple chapters of the book of Job. If you've been with us the last few months, we've been studying this, and hopefully next week we'll wrap it up. We've been studying a life of a man who is so dedicated to the Lord, one who has made sure that his devotion is clear throughout the book, and yet he's had a lot of battles. Remember, this is a gentleman who grew up in that eastern area of the world, in the region that in the Old Testament is called Uz. We read about his commitment. If you recall, at the very beginning of the book, God said these words, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, that that man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. And it was so when the days of their feasting, his children, that is, were gone about, that he sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and burnt offerings according to the number of his children. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God. Thus did Job continually. Then when God speaks to Satan, he says, Have you considered my servant Job? And he says... Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect, upright man, one that, is, that fears God and eschews evil? And so you have the story of this really, really godly man that even later on, generations later, he has put up with one of the, as one of the heroes of the faith compared to a Noah and a Daniel, who the prophet Ezekiel talks about and says their righteousness protected them and saved them. And yet, as we recall the story, that Job had a number of conflicts. It starts in chapter 1 with a conflict where Satan starts to attack him, given permission by God to test his faith. Satan starts coming to him with a series of different attacks. Some are upon his property, upon his cattle. There's uh, raiders, two different groups of them come, and they take away all of his, his cattle, his camels, his horses, the asses, all of them. They kill a lot of his servants. Then there's another affliction. It's storms that come, lightning that strikes, burns up all of his crops. Then all of a sudden there's this most horrific tornado that comes. His ten children are partying at one of the brothers' homes, probably for a birthday party, the way the text sounds. And a tornado comes and collapses the house and all ten of his children, plus whoever may be in their families, they're killed in this one instantaneous moment. And so Job, in this matter of just this few minutes, hears about losing everything. Death in his family, loses his position in the community, loses his social security, loses all of his bank accounts, loses everything. He can't even take care of the people who have been relying upon him, who worked for him, the widows, the orphans of those whose parents were killed and slaughtered by the attackers. And there he is. This one who has been long in, t in time, stand out in the community, living in the, living in the gates and ruling and directing. Now he ends up on an ash heap, literally, down in the dump of, of the city town. And he, there he is, suffering. But he gets more problems. While he's there, he gets a second attack from Satan, and it includes a physical affliction that's talked about because Satan isn't satisfied. Job hasn't yet cursed God. In fact, he's remained faithful, and so he is allowed to attack a second time. And the attack is with this violent illness that causes an oozing and worms and fever and hard breathing and sleeplessness and no hunger or no appetite, just a continuous hunger. And here he is. This man who's lost everything now loses his health. And apparently it goes on for weeks or maybe even months. So it isn't this sudden thing that happens and it's gone in a matter of days. Put yourself in Job's sandals. He is going to be afflicted for weeks and weeks and weeks. And during those weeks and weeks and weeks, his friends come. They show up and there's three of them. And they sit by him and they're going to give him some comfort. But they end up, more of the book is talking about their accusations. Job, this is happening to you because you have some secret sin in your life. You're being punished. Something evil must be in your life. Surely there's nobody that's afflicted this way unless they are, and they are turning against God. And so they tell him, you've got to repent, you've got to repent, you've got to repent. And Job, in that series of discussions that we've looked at, he responds and says, no, there isn't anything. There isn't something secret in my life. And that's the bulk of the book. They're trying to explain to him why suffering comes. He's trying to say, that's not, you're not right. That's not what's happening. This isn't a discipline from the Lord in my life. And so Job is going through all this, and yet he remains faithful. We read that he makes the comment, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. I will maintain my ways before him. Till I die, I will keep my integrity. And so he's trusting in the Lord. He's just trying to be loyal to the Lord in the midst of all of this affliction and accusations. But that doesn't mean 
There isn't problems going on. There's a lot of agitations. The, the, the conflicts, the challenges he has, one of them is his own heart, is his own agitation. Where he in his own spirit, though he's remaining faithful, he's not denying the Lord. He isn't going to desert the Lord. He isn't going to say, that's it, I'm done. But he has doubts. He has some questions. He has some internal conflicts. What he does is he starts questioning exactly when he has opportunity. He says, Lord, I don't understand why you don't answer my prayers. He says to the Lord, he says, I just don't understand why you're doing this to me. It just doesn't seem quite fair. The wicked that I see, they, they, yeah, some of them suffer. But a lot of them, they get away with wickedness. They, they, they continue to be corrupt. They continue to be greedy. They continue to be vile. And they don't seem like they have the same amount of problems that I do. Their kids are growing up. Their cattle are, are prospering. They have, they have bank accounts. I've got nothing. They, they seem to be able to go about their business without any illness and here I am, I'm sitting on an ash heap, and I, the most I can do is scrape the boils. And it doesn't seem quite fair, God. I don't understand. I'm going to remain loyal to you. I'm not going to deny you. But I don't understand why you're doing this. I, I, I just, and it, it appears to me, it appears to me as if I think you stopped caring about me. Several times, remember, he says, God, you treat me like an enemy. In fact, what he does, he comes to a point where he clearly states multiple times, God, I, I want an explanation. We need one-on-one. -on -one. And he, he creates in the impression in the book, he creates this idea that and only, the only way I'm going to get you to explain to me is if I sue you, if I take you to court. Their court was a little bit different than ours. Their court would be one that you bring the person before the judges and then they would, they would make the person explain or, or give answer to why they did what they did. And he says, I, this is what I want. I want to call you before court if I could. You're God. It's tough to call you in court. How do I give you a subpoena? You know, he he's talked like that. He's made some of those statements. He says, but if I could, I, I, I would like you to explain to me face to face why you're doing this to me. I would like you to explain why the wicked get away with things, but I'm being punished. Uh, if I could, I would defend myself, and you would see that I don't deserve this. And so that's where the book is gone. He's loyal to the Lord, but he's at the same time on one-on-one with God alone. He's saying, but God, explain yourself. We came to a section in the book after he's done all of that conversation. He comes to a spot where he stops speaking, and Elihu starts speaking. And Elihu, a young man, says, you know, all of you guys who have been accusing him, you're wrong. He, he, you don't have any proof that he's done anything wrong. But Job, you've borderlined an almost disrespect to God. You've kind of elevated yourself to a point where you think God has to answer you. You think you could sue God? And so Elihu warns him and says, you are on this real, you're starting to show some real arrogance and some real pride. And at that point, everybody quiets and God shows up. That's what we've been, we talked about two weeks ago. God shows up in a tornado. Now that would get your attention and that would quiet everybody down except for going, whoa. And God starts speaking. And when the Lord speaks, there's four chapters of what the Lord says. We already looked at two of the chapters. We looked, those two chapters form one of his first sets of comments. What we're at is we're at the spot where we're getting into the second set of comments in chapter 40 and 41, up to 42, where God is speaking to him. And I want to remind you that when God spoke in that first section that we looked at, God took him on a tour. God said, Job, you think that I need to explain myself to you? You think that you are coming? Now, now I mind you, we need, to, we need to pause. God doesn't say, Job, I, I'm really sorry. Job, you poor guy. Job is like you and me as a parent. That your child as a teenager or young, whatever age has all of a sudden been showing a little bit of lip, a little bit of attitude. And you want to help them and you want to direct them as they are telling you what they are going to do. 
that they are going to such and such, and you want to discuss that with them, but I probably I'm the only one in the room. There was moments that I had to sit my kids down and say, hey, wait a minute, before we get into the subject matter, we need to make sure we talk about your attitude first. You need to listen to me instead of tell me what you're doing. You need to, like when they were little, your kids never did this. My kids would go into the store and they would say, I want that. And my response is, you want that? You're telling me I have to get that for you? What happened to please, thank you? You deal with the attitude first? See, nobody nods their heads, so it's just my kids. Okay. But there are moments in dealing with them, it was, okay, before we get to the issue of whether or not you can buy this car, we're going to talk about your attitude of respect in this conversation, the way you've approached me. Make sense? That's what I think God is doing with Job. Is Job, he's going to say, Job, before I explain what you need to know, let me just calm you down from your tower of demanding. So I'm going to take you on this tour of the universe, and I'm going to ask you, were you here when I made the world? Did I seek your advice? The way I do the rain and the lightning, and he went through all of those, and we talked about that. Most of you weren't back when we did the evening message two weeks ago, where he took him on a tour of a zoo. And God started taking him through a variety of different creatures and talked about all these different critters. Oh, by the way, he talked, in, if you look at chapter 39, about verse 9, is it? He talks about the unicorn. Somebody after that, serve, that morning service said, hey, I saw it tonight, you're going to talk about a unicorn. What about the unicorn? We talked about it on that Sunday night, but let me just mention again, okay, that the word there that they use for unicorn isn't the word unicorn, it was a word in the Hebrew that is ra'am. Okay? And that word was translated multiple different ways. The word in the Bible, sometimes it's oxen, sometimes it's cattle, sometimes it's... And, and scholars don't exactly know what the animal was. Could it have been that unicorn? Could it have been a creature like this? Well, that's a unicorn. Okay? That's a one-horned animal. Could it have been the, what, what many scholars think, the Iraq, that which is written about by the Assyrians, written about by the Egyptians, that it was a species of wild oxen that nobody could tame and everybody stayed away from, which fits the context and the description that you read in that text. But whatever it is, we know that as the story went along, he talked about these animals, strange animals, unusual animals, Animals that some consider ignorant. And his point that God was making is, Job, you doubted whether I really cared or not. And we talk about this. That God is saying, what about this animal? What about this one? What about this one? And God is saying to him once again, these animals that I control, you don't. Some of you don't even domesticate. You know, in fact, isn't it true that, undomest- uh, that domesticated animals can sometimes be uncontrollable? Yes, No. Can a horse run away? Okay. Can a dog be, that you have as a pet, can it get uncontrollable? Yeah, okay. What about a camel in the Middle East? Nice music. Going to go for a camel ride. This is going to be pleasant. This is fun for the tourist. No problem whatsoever. Yeah, anticipation. The camel's going to get up. Just not a memorable ride. Uh, okay, so can, un- can domesticated animals become a problem? But that's why we don't have live animals in our reenactment. Okay. God's point is this. I'm able to control the animals all the time. In fact, 
I know all about them. You guys, and if you were here that night, we talked about the ibex and different animals that men didn't even know gestation period. God says, I know all about them, and I care for them. That was his point. That's where he's been speaking in that chapters of 38 and 39. And Job, at the end of it, Job's response was a classic response. says, I'm a lightweight. I'm not, you know, he says, what am I going to answer you, God? You've got my attention. You've, you, I, I've said too many things. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. But there's something that Job didn't say. There was something that God expected more of him. One is something, a, a, a different, better response than what he got. So he continues with second message. The second message now we read. In fact, Join me as we just start saying, reading where God picks up after Job says, I'm just going to be quiet. Verse 6 of chapter 40. Then answered the Lord unto him out of the whirlwind. This is the second time. Chapter 40, verse 6. And he said, gird up thy loins now like a man. Same thing he had said at the beginning of his other message. Get ready. I'm going to, I'm going to do, have you do something really difficult. And remember he asked 77 questions. Here he says, now gird up your loins. I'm going to demand of thee. And declare thou unto me, I'm going to give you more questions. You're going to have to answer them. Will you also disannul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may become righteous? Do you have an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. Cast abroad the rage of your wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Look on every one that is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together and bind their faces in secret. Then, then I'll confess un, unto you that thine own right hand can save you. What's he doing? What's God saying to him? God's rebuking him. God says, again, get ready. I'm going to give you a, I'm going to give you a test here. It's going to be difficult. What I'm going to say next is going to be really hard. And he answers and tells him, or he says to him, you're going to answer me. I'm not answering you. Job has said already, if I could, God, I'm going to, I'm going to take you to court and make you answer. And God is saying, wait a minute. I'm not answering you. You're going to answer to me. And basically he says, you are going to break off my determinations you are going to say that what I have done in your life is inappropriate. You are going to condemn me. The word literally means accuse me of wrongdoing. You are going to sit here and you're going to tell me who's talking from a tornado, who's created everything. You're going to say that I have done wrong. You're going to put yourself on the same level as me and say that you can haul me to court. Basically, God is saying, I don't think so. And then God gets a little bit sarcastic with this. Oh, by the way, he's basically saying, you think you can debate me and question me face to face? Do you think, verse 9, do you think you're as strong as I am? That idea of, do you have an arm like God's arm? Basically, can you take me on? Yeah, you, you think so? You can run things better? And in those last section where he's talking about the wicked, he's saying, fine. If you think you can do such a good job, put on majesty, put on, put on royalty, and with your knowledge, you deal with the evil of the world. You see if you can make the world a better place. Go ahead, Job. You run things. Have you ever had that moment that somebody comes to you at work, and you know your job well, but they come and they don't have a clue of what you do, but they would want you to do your job a certain way, and you feel like saying, fine, then you do it. You ever have those moments? Okay, that's what God is doing with Job. And he is saying, Job, fine. If you want to be able to preach to the world, you come up here and you prepare a message and you do it if you think you're so good. Can I ask you a question? Do you think the world would be a better place if you were in charge? Seriously. Do you think there would be less chaos if everything was left to your choice? Do you think that everything would work so that we'd be more fair to everybody else? Do you think you would be able to bring all the wickedness into a conclusion one day where it's humbled and it's abased? Think you could do it with what knowledge you have? That's what God's asking Job. And you and I in reality would say, are you nuts? If we were in charge, yeah, right? We say, let's put one political party in charge and everything will be okay. 
And does he get better? And so God is saying to him, and God says this in verse 14, fine, if you end up doing a better job than I, then I know you can save yourself. In other words, you don't need me. And I'll walk away. And so before he lets Job answer, he says, now Job, with that in mind, I want you, before you answer, before you say you're ready to take over, I want you to consider two more animals. I, I want you to consider, you know, these, and he's, he's going to take them down a journey. But um, with this journey, he says, I, I want to illustrate a couple other things. And by the way, the two animals he's going to cause, draw his attention to are behemoth and leviathan. Those are the ones that we discuss here in the next few moments. Now, before you and I do the discussion and see what God is saying by the, by the illustration, the object lesson of behemoth and Leviathan, let's pause. Let's pause and let's pull Bible truth from where we're at right now with this story. Let's remind ourselves any godly saint, any godly saint probably will, okay, can face serious trials and troubles. That's a truism. We're not immune from trials and troubles because we're believers. When they come, they can come from Satan to hurt us. They can come from God to help us. Or they can be a combination of both involved with their own, their own purposes. So when the trials come, which we've talked about, we've stated this several times, they don't mean that they're a punishment from God because you have done something evil and he and us, and you better check your heart, because, and you should check just to make sure. But the idea is that it, every problem is not because of some discipline that God is meeting out. Could it be? Yes. Is it all the time? No. Okay, so let's, let's state this fact. But let's, let's think. This is, this is one of those messages I think I'm going to lose half of you. Because it requires some real intense thinking through this text. Go with me to the second thought. All saints, all saints have room for further spiritual growth and improvement. That's what he's dealing with Job. Job is a man who is extremely godly. Throughout the book, extremely loyal, but he had a weak spot. In fact, God is going to point out his weak spots in this text. And God, in dealing with Job, used suffering to point out his weak spots. Does that ever happen today? Does God ever bring suffering to deal with some real, real personal critical issues in people's lives? Yes. Yes. Um, I remember when I was working in the gas station and what we did is most of the tires had inner tubes in them. Okay, they weren't tubeless tires. They were kind of new when I was working in my dad's gas station. And if somebody came in, they said, I have a slow leak. Those of you who have ever repaired inner tubes, what do you do if it's a slow leak and not an obvious hole? You take, you take the inner tube and you, you blow this bugger up. You know, it's usually going to be about this big. You get this thing huge. And you get it so that under pressure, it'll, it'll leak. And then what you can do is you can put, pour water over it as you keep on looking at each spot. And wherever that leak is, because it's under pressure, it's going to do what when the water hits it? It's going to bubble. Okay. Otherwise, we used to have this big tank. We'd take the inner tubes and we'd put them in the tank and rotate the inner tube through until we saw the bubbles. But you put it under pressure to find the weak spot. So you can repair the weak spot. Does God ever do that with us? Does he ever blow up our lives so we're under a lot of pressure to find out where we're leaking? Does it all the time. Does it all the time. Which means this. When God comes to Job, think this through. When God comes to Job, Job has got some weakness. He's got some pride in his life. God doesn't come, and this, this is so contrary. This is where some of us struggle with Job. We expect God to come to Job, and the first words to Job is, Oh, Job, you poor dear. Oh, Job, you're a good man. Oh, Job, we are so touchy-feely in our approach to things that we want God to speak only good really sweet words to Job. God is more concerned about his consecration and his comfort 
that the first words out of, Job's, out of God's mouth to Job are, Job, you've got a problem. You've got an issue. I tell you what, what is more compassionate? Helping a person grow out of their problem or giving them pity and they stay in their real problem? Which one's more compassionate? Which one is more loving? In our day and age, we want to say, oh, showing pity. No, no, God is looking for his best and wants to improve Job, not leave Job just where he's at. And so God comes and in compassion, in sarcasm, in, in firmness, he says, now wait a minute, before we deal with some of the major issues, you've got an attitude issue. And let's deal with the attitude. Let's deal with this pride. And God knows exactly what each of us needs to bring to the point of real dedication. God uses behemoth and Leviathan. He uses them to get Job to finally say with his mouth, I repent. I repent of my attitude. And so in this text, we think this through. Every godly saint needs to regularly examine themselves for those subtle, weak spots like pride. Every one of us. We don't come here this morning to say, let's just give God what we've got and that's it, and boy, we're giving him some great stuff. We're supposed to be saying, God, I want to give you great stuff, but do I need to grow? Search me, O God. Know me. Job was overall very good in his worship. We saw that. We read that. He was very good in the community. Yet he had some air leaks in his life that God needs to deal with. And I bet you he's not the only one in this room. I know he's not the only one. Because I know I'm with Job and I'm much worse than Job. And I would think that probably... There could be some here this morning who have areas to grow in like patience. Like not insisting everything is their way. Like not admitting that you're wrong at times. Maybe there's some that need to grow in just anxiousness and fearfulness and anxieties. Maybe there's some here who need to grow in the area of better controlling their speech. Maybe some have to work on how they respond to difficult moments instead of getting angry and blowing their, their stack and re yelling or screaming. Maybe some need to better accept criticism and accountability. Maybe some need to say, I, I, I need to get rid of some resentment that I've been harboring over something that was said to me weeks or months ago by a family member or a relative or a church member. May, maybe some here, some of us need to deal with, stop talking about ourselves so much. Maybe some of us need to realize that the schedule in my life can be turned upside down and I have no right to getting upset. Maybe for some of us it's, you know, not being so frustrated with others around us or they didn't notice me at church. They didn't recognize the way I played my instrument. Nobody said anything, so I'm mad because I didn't get attention. Maybe it comes down to some here need to work on something so subtle as finding fault with others. By the way, did you notice that all of these deal with pride? That some are so confident we can sing, we can preach, we can do our thing that we didn't even spend time in prayer. Maybe the subtle thing is the idea of stop making yourself the standard for others. Maybe the subtle thing is that you haven't been in the Word of God on a regular basis, on a daily basis, because you think you can get away with living without the Word of God. You know so much of it. Those subtle areas of people who are like Job, who are godly and righteous, and yet there's a leak. And so God dealing with Job says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at two more creatures. Two big creatures, the behemoth and the leviathan. By the way, this isn't the only time they're mentioned in the scriptures, but these are the most extensive lists and descriptions of any animals throughout the Bible, especially leviathan, as we'll talk about tonight. And in this section, the questions obviously come up of what are they? 
And we get all enamored with what they are. We want to just you know, get all the details, and it's rightfully so. We need to have information of what they are. And some will say these are mere symbolisms. And there's a lot of reading. You can do, you do your study. You'll find a lot of stuff that these are not real creatures. They're just symbols of evil and corruption. And they'll give you arguments out of the text. Those are things we need to deal with from here through the end of tonight. And so let's, let's start with behemoth. Let's read what God says. Job, look at this creature. Because I want to teach you something from him. So to learn, we've got to get an idea of what it is. Behold now behemoth, which I made with you. He eats grass as an ox. Lo, now his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moves his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He's the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food where all the beasts of the field play. He lies under the shady trees in the covert of the reed in the fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinks up a river and hasteth not. He trusts that he can draw up, by the way, it's a Jordan, not the Jordan. A Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes. His nose pierces through with snares. Uh, Just brief description. Okay, something big. By the way, the word behemoth is in the plural. Behemoths. He's referring to a singular creature, but with the plural. God does that only a few times. He refers to himself with a plural. Though he's, in some will say it's only Trinity, but when he refers to himself as a singular God, he uses a plural. Which means he's beyond much more than anything that compares to it. I think that's what's happening in this text. Look at the behemoths, not just a whole bunch of animals, but this one animal that is so big, we refer to him in the plural sense. He eats grass like he's an herbivore. Okay, we, we understand that. He's big. He's strong. We understand that. He has a large tail, like the cedar tree. We understand that he's the first, the chief, it says, of God's creation. Um, Not first in chronology, probably, but first in the sense that he's, of the land animals, he's number one. He's big, okay, of all the animals. He is a land animal. We know that because the mountains bring forth food food for him, as well as he's eating by the river banks and, and wading in the waters. Other animals, they don't fear him. They play around him, which indicates that he is not a meat eater, okay? That other animals are round about, and they don't fear it. He enjoys the marshes as well as the water, okay, that we've already read about. He has a great capacity for waters to drink, to, you know, eat himself, the food himself. When the water, he hastes not. It's the idea of when there's turbulence that's in this river. He isn't moved by the turbulence. He's big enough to remain firm even when the river is probably at high tide or high seasons. He's not easily attacked. In fact, nobody gets near him apparently except for God, where it says that the Lord approaches with his sword. But others, they, this thing isn't easily taken down. Okay, we read about you know all these different descriptions, and so right away our our interest is what type of animal is it? Which one is it? Well, here's what's suggested. Some suggest it's a hippo. Some suggest it's a rhino. Some suggest it's a water buffalo. Some suggest it's an elephant, and some of us goofy people suggest it's a dinosaur. And you say, wait a minute, dinosaurs? How how can that be? Okay. If, if there were dinosaurs, why didn't the Bible say dinosaur? Well, understand that term dinosaur is really a modern term. Uh, King James, for instance, is 1611. The term dinosaur didn't even show up until 1842. And all it means in the, in the terminology using the ancient language, you know, dinosaur, all it means is a, a terrible lizard, a scary lizard. Okay, and so he's, we, we have that, and not all translators agree it's a dinosaur, so some don't, the conclusion is by modern, by modern translations is let's just use the Hebrew word and transliterate. In the Hebrew, it's pronounced behemoth. So in English, you take the B and the E and the H and the E and you just transliterate, and then you leave it up to the reader to decide. And so here we would, the question comes, 
you know, that some would ask, just like somebody asked, do you think there's unicorns? I have, I have no doubt there could have been one-horned animals. They're probably not the pretty little picture of the, you know, the horse. But do you really think there were such animals as these big creatures called dinosaurs, huge lizards? Well, yeah. You know, they're, you know in this text, it seems to fit the, the description very well. But, you know, there are archaeological discoveries of animals with big bones. Yeah? You know, just because we don't believe in evolution doesn't mean we don't believe in big creatures that used to walk this earth. Okay? And so we know that there's all kinds of fossilized records and indication that there were these huge, and, I re, and I'm not going to use the term, prehistoric. What a dumb term. Okay? Okay, what a dumb term. They're, they're, that's saying before history was. Okay? There are... There, there were these large animals that are called terrible lizards or dinosaurs in our books. The, um, in fact, we do have dinosaurs. We have terrible lizards today. I think any reptile is a terrible lizard. Okay? And if I let a snake in this room, I think most of you would say, it's a terrible animal. Okay? I want to get away from it. And we could see where it was in the room by just where the herd would go, one way or the other way. Yeah, but aren't there, aren't there different types of creatures like this today that are terribly scary? Yeah. Yeah. So to say, is this possible to have this? There's no doubt. Why don't modern dinosaurs then live to be as big as they did years ago? You know, when you're talking to your kids and explaining that, that, that that's such a, a simple explanation. Number one is, you know, prior to the flood, creatures were so much different. Okay. People lived hundreds and hundreds of years old, yes? 969 years old was Methuselah. Now think of your Christmas gift if you had lived to be 969 years old. Okay. And you know, and I know this, that reptiles typically just keep on growing and growing. They're not like us. They don't reach a spot and then you, know, you reach a certain height and then you don't keep growing and what grows is your hair falls out and your scalp and that's it. Reptiles just keep on growing and growing. So if there was, if there was in that pre-flood stage where there was an environment that, that was consistent and conducive for people to live hundreds of years, so animals lived hundreds of years, some of those animals got terribly big. You wouldn't keep them in the doghouse. They were, they were just huge. And then after the flood, things changed drastically. The world changed, and the environment was such that some of those creatures couldn't live as long, nor could they live in the same parts of the world, because now, after the flood, you have the poles. You have the different mountain ranges, and then you have people going all... But we hear that they lived millions of years ago, and they say that everything, you know, skeletons are millions of years old. You do remember God created with age, Right? He didn't create when he said, let there be plants, that all it was seeds. There was immediately mature, growing plants that were able to reproduce. When he said, let there be Adam and Eve, they were adults able to reproduce. So God created animals with age. And as well, some of the age is you know, determined by all kinds of fossils. And you can, you can change the, uh, the process of fossilization based on the environment and the pressure and the temperature, the flood can explain a lot of that. You want to do research, there are plenty of books. There are plenty of resources. In fact, there's evidence. Let me, let me just read one quick article here. There's evidence that goes like this. In fact, several years ago, the University of Montana, we visited this summer. It was a, it's a fascinating, fascinating um, museum there. One of the world's best on dinosaurs out in Montana. Um, several years ago, scientists from the University of Montana found T. rex bones that were not entirely fossilized. There were sections of the bones clearly considered fresh. If those bones were really millions of years old, the blood cells that they found in them would have been disintegrated. A report by one of the scientists, and he quotes it, 
The lab was filled with murmurs of excitement, for I had focused on something inside the vessels that none of us had ever noticed before. Tiny red object, tiny round objects, translucent red with a dark center. Red blood cells. Blood cells are mostly water and could not possibly have been preserved in a 65 million year old dinosaur. They were indeed hemoglobin fragments. This discovery never made it to the local PTA meetings, and it never showed up in scientific journals or middle school textbooks, and it never will. But it's real. There's real accounts such as that. In fact, there's real situations where you have people's footprints overlapping with dinosaur footprints, which means they lived at the same time, okay? There's multiple situations. There's, there's drawings that indicate that some people who were cave dwellers, that they were hunting dinosaurs, okay? There isn't this millions and millions of years old that's so much different. But listen, here's my problem with this message. My problem is we are so intrigued by the dinosaurs and learning about the dinosaur, we forget what God is getting at in the text, so I think it's my duty. We can do another study another time on dinosaurs. It's my duty to remind you what is God teaching by pointing to this animal? What is God saying? Okay? We know that there are God's telling Job, there are great beasts beyond your control. I've already showed you. God said, I've already showed you animals that are like the camel out of control. There are all these, the ostrich and, and the oxen and the ass. I've already showed you. And if they haven't gotten it, you haven't understood that you can't control everything. Let me take you to behemoth. Where you stand there and you look at the sky to see its head. And it's a whole lot bigger than you. And you can't control it. I dare you to put a collar around its neck. I dare you to put one of those electric fences. You know, to keep it in your yard. Well, actually, it's four feet are in three people's yards, you know. Uh, the great beast could not be overcome. By the way, we'll see it again tonight when we go in depth on chapter 41. In chapter 41, when he's saying, you know, have you done this? Have you done... It's all singular pronouns. It's very clear. You, Job, when it comes to you and the Leviathan, you wouldn't dare... This is basically what he's saying. You wouldn't dare come to Leviathan and say, Hey, you better listen to me. Because you'd be eaten up. So he's going, these great beasts, he's going to remind, they're created by me. These great beasts, these are, these are controlled by me. And so, Job, with this in mind, you have called me here to call me on the carpet have you considered my big pet dinosaur? And, and when you consider it, if you can't control that big dumb animal, do you think you're going to be able to control evil better than I do? You're wondering how I deal with evil. You think you could do a better job? You can't even control that animal. That animal that scares even the most evil of people. You're, you can't tell this big dumb animal what to do. And you're going to stand there and tell me what to do when I made that big dumb animal next to you? Yeah. You, you fear this animal. When he comes walking, you don't want to be in his path. You don't want to get near it. The only one who approaches it is me with my sword. And you fear it, but you have the audacity to come and contend with me. You wouldn't wake this animal up, especially the Leviathan. We'll see tonight. You wouldn't dare, if it's sleeping, let sleeping dinos sleep. But me, me, you would dare come and stand before me. And you would contend with me, the creator of these animals? The lessons are real simple. They're real clear. The lessons go this way. We are not as impressive as we think we are. Job, you are not as righteous as you think you are. Job, you are not as good as you think you are. Job, you are not as What word would I use? I, somebody would demand that people answer to them. 
You are not as great as an authority as you think you are. Job, you're a godly man. You're a good man. You fear me. You trust me. But you've got this pride that says, God, you got to answer me. When I call, you need to answer in my timetable. Job, you're not as that, that impressive. <laughs> what can we add here about us? Are we as righteous as we think we are? Some of us, some of us, may have the thought that we're going to heaven because we're good enough to get there. Talk about pride. Talk about pride that says, well, I deserve to get into heaven. And God says, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sins not. God says, your sins before me are as filthy rags. But we would have the audacity to come to church and to say, because I go to church, you owe me. We're not, we're not as righteous. And then those of us who are born again, we probably come this morning, I do, we come this morning and say, yeah, I'm pretty good. I don't can list those sins that we don't do. Aren't I good, God? And God would say, you don't impress me the way you think you do. In fact, you're not as important as you think you are. I think I'm pretty important at moments. I think I'm so important that everybody in my family should listen to what I say. I think that every one of you should stay wide awake when I speak. I'm not that important. And neither are you. I'm not important, that important that everything in this, in this auditorium has to be so that my temperature is just right. I'm not as good of a preacher as what I think sometimes. I'm, as, I'm not as good as a Bible student as maybe my diploma says I was. Some of us were not as good musically as what sometimes we think we are. Some of us are not as good athletically as what we think we deserve to be treated. Some of us aren't as wise as we think the rest of the world should notice. The fact is, we're not that much better than other people. We may think we are. We may find somebody that we can criticize but too often, we shoot off our mouths when we shouldn't. You know, the bottom line is, we're not as wise. Job, for all your goodness and for all your wisdom, you weren't as smart as you thought you were. You need me, God is saying. You need me more than you know you need me. And for those of us who say, I'm not going to pray, I'm not going to read my Bible, God would say to you and me, you don't know how much you need the Bible. You don't know how much you need to be under the preaching of the Word of God. You just assume that you know so much Scripture you never have to come back, but just one 45-minute session on a Sunday, once a week. And God would say, hey, nuts. In the New Testament, how often did they gather? Daily. Maybe that's why they have much more power than we do. We're not as impressive, but we're not as invisible. We're not as invisible as we think. What I mean by that is this. We're not overlooked by God. Even though we've got the weak spots, even though we've got the, the tire and the air leaking out at times, God doesn't give up on us. God comes and speaks. God notices. God cares. And we can't hide by coming to church. Job, you can't hide by sitting there and scraping off the boils and insisting you're righteous. I see I know where the weak spot is. You can't hide it from me. And God sees as we sit in these pews today. As I stand and preach, God knows our weaknesses. God knows where we need to grow. God knows where the impatience or the judgmental attitude or the, the loose lips or the whatever it may be. God knows. There is no secret from God that we can keep. God knows how you talk to family. God knows how you pray. God knows whether you're in the Word of God. 
And when we stand here and we pretend and we, we act like we've got it all in control, God knows. We're not invisible to him. And he knows where we need to grow. And he knows exactly where we need to improve to better please him. That's the God that Job is talking to. In the middle of the conversation, if we just stop right here, isn't there enough to knock our socks off spiritually and say, woe is me. Woe is me, I am undone. By the way, if you read what Job says, at the end of this whole discussion, as we'll see tonight, Job just says, forgive me. Forgive me. I repent. That's where God wanted him to be. So when we come and say, okay, let's remind ourselves, God sees all. And he really cares. He cares for these big, dumb animals. And he cares for the small sparrows that follow the ground. And he says, "How aren't you much better? If I care for them, I care for you. Isn't this true that God sees our sinfulness and he cares enough that he sends a savior? Isn't, isn't that wonderful of God? That despite our pride, despite our sinfulness, that God would send a savior to die for us, to give us... God, God sees our immaturity. He knows where we need to grow. So he still works with us. He guides us into texts like this that would challenge you and me to really reconsider how proud we are. He, he cares enough that he knows our battles. So what does he do? He gives us the spirit. He gives us the word. He gives us friends. He sees our limits. So what does he do? He measures out what it will take without destroying Job. Job was so strong, he could handle all this. I couldn't. I would have collapsed much before Job. But God knew exactly what Job could handle, and God knows exactly what we can handle to help us. And he measures it out. God hears our prayers. So that when we pray, he answers with what's best for us. Not always what we want, but what's best for us. This God who cares sees the small creatures, and he sees us. Who, by comparison, we're big creatures. We're the behemoths compared to the birds. Isn't this a wonderful God that we serve? That he's so big. He is so majestic. He is so amazing that his pet is a behemoth. And we just go, wow. Wow. And you care for me? You don't have to. Because I'm not impressive. But what I learned from this is you are impressive. You are amazing. Lesson? Let's tarry it with us. Before we get into the next section this evening, God sees me for who and what I am. God sees me. God sees you. He sees strengths, weaknesses. He sees where the air is leaking. He sees where growth you've had. He sees your needs. So here's a question. Will you trust him? Will you trust him this week? Here's, here's a bigger question. Will you examine yourself? Will you willing, willingly this morning examine your life and say, Oh God, search me. Try me. See if there will be any wicked way in me.